Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's February 3rd, 2021 as we record this new episode. And since our last episode, which was with Van Graaff, Stan Zaborski, our best friend of the show, a lot has happened around Major League Baseball. The Chicago White Sox are bringing back starting pitcher Carlos Rodon. Major League Baseball's proposal for universal DH and expanded playoffs was not accepted by the Major League Baseball Players Association. And Nolan Arenado was traded to the St. Louis Cardinals. So many stars have been traded this offseason. Francisco Lindor, Nolan Arenado, Blake Snell, Hugh Darvish, counting Mookie Betts last offseason. Untouchable stars are being moved. But impacting the Chicago White Sox the most this week is Minnesota has finally counterpunched their offseason moves. After signing starting pitcher Jay Happ and starting shortstop Andrelaton Simmons, the Twins re-signed Nelson Cruz. And to top it off, we'll be signing former Chicago White Sox closer Alex Colome to help with their high leverage situations. This is shaping up to be an extra spicy American League Central race in 2021. We'll talk about Rodon's return to the White Sox, the Arenado trade, and also Garrett Crochet and Andrew Vaughn's roles for this upcoming season. But 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 let's bring in my co-host for this episode. He's the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. The Twins offseason is finally rounding into shape with just a couple of weeks before spring training. And at least on paper, it appears the moves they have made are going to make this race for the American League Central crown, in my opinion, a dead heat between the White Sox and the Twins. Pretty much. It seems like they had, uh, when you look at the White Sox 
the way they went about it was trying to cross off items on their list as fast as possible. Like, all right, we need a right fielder. We need a starting pitcher. We need a closer. Um, so, you know, bam, bam, bam. Just knock them all out. Uh, whoever is available, sign first. Like Jock Peterson, they they wanted him first. He wanted too much money or another year. So they went to Adam Eaton. They didn't wait around for him. They didn't wait for him to come down at price or see who would, uh, you know, how it would shake out if they waited to see if he found a better deal. They just went and moved on to Eaton. And so basically they made those three moves and then it's been largely settled except for, you know, signing Carlos Rodon on like a make good deal. And and we'll we'll talk about that in a bit. But with the Twins, they seem to, you know, slow played a bit more and, um, you know, they didn't need necessarily like the high octane closer so they could wait to see what bullpen deal worked out. So Alex Colomay was available on a reasonable deal. Nelson Cruz, you know, had the right to test the market or see whether uh, National League would get DH and whether his, uh, you know, his his field of suitors would expand by double. And that really hasn't worked out. So he came back to the Twins and uh, they, they successfully waited that out. So, you know, it's it's two different time frames, two different, I think, ideas of how to get the offseason done. And they've basically ended up in the same place in terms of, uh, you know, uh, crossing off their core objectives and, you know, pretty much in payroll, too. And again, on our last podcast episode with Dan Zaborski, in his thoughts, and also with the Zips rejection system, with Nelson Cruz coming back to the Minnesota Twins, according to Zips, the Twins are going to be the slight favorites in the American League Central over the Chicago White Sox. Now, everybody is going to be handicapping this American League Central race in different ways. Obviously you have the odds maker themselves. You have other projection systems as well, like Pakoda, uh, which was just released on an individual basis for hitters and pitchers on baseball prospectus. They're going to have the projected Pakoda standings uh, soon uh, released and they'll have their say on who they are projecting to be the American league central favorite entering 2021. But Jim, let's say we were odds makers. How would you handicap the American League Central race now? Do you have the White Sox or Twins as a favorite, or should they share the same odds? I have the Twins as a slight favorite just because they've done it before. Uh, The White Sox have not done it. They haven't done it over the long haul. They didn't quite get it done in the 60-game season, so... For me, you know, given that they have a new manager who is a controversial hire and a new pitching coach and, you know, right now like a one-ply roster, you know, they have a couple of backups. They have like, you know, Andrew Vaughn perhaps waiting in the wings and they have, uh, you know, Michael Kopech, assuming he comes back, um, you know, starts the season in Charlotte and gets up to speed. You know, they have a couple of impact depth guys, but... Besides that, if they get a key injury in the outfield, say, or if, uh, you know, like Yohan Makata isn't quite right, you know, Yasmani Grandal gets hurt, like they, they have a one-ply roster, whereas the Twins have a bit more depth across the board, a little bit more modularity in terms of how they can deploy guys around the diamond. So it seems to me like the White Sox have to prove it, and, uh, you know, unless they, you know, make another, like say if they got Trevor Bauer, and, and I don't think it's going to happen, but let's just say they did, then I would say the White Sox are favorites. But if they don't have another impact move up their sleeve and just rode down like pieces here and there, you know, good bargains or non-roster invitees who, you know, might, um, you know, have a spot penciled into the 26-man roster, I don't see them, you know, having that move up their sleeve to make them clear favorites over the Twins. And I think right now they have to be clear favorites in order for me to call them slight favorites just because of the White Sox, you know, tendency to get less than... Uh, the sum of their parts. 
And for those that do place bets, especially in the state of Illinois, on the DraftKings Sportsbook, uh, they still have the Chicago White Sox as minus 130 favorites to win the American League Central, meaning that if you put $10 bet on the White Sox to win the American League Central at those odds, you would win $7.70. So your total output would be $17.70. And the Minnesota Twins at plus 175. Uh, so still some separation, at least through that sports book. For me, I think I would put the odds as the same between the White Sox and Twins. I understand what you're saying about the one ply as far as the depth. And we talk about that constantly about this White Sox team mm-hmm. uh, is the lack of depth. I just feel like there is more potential with the White Sox as far as total output if the team stays healthy, and that is a pretty big if. Uh, Whereas the Minnesota Twins, when you look at their projections, they don't have four-war or five-war projections like the White Sox do with Yasmani Grandal and Lucas Giolito. What they do have on the offensive side they got eight guys who have a projection of two war or better. So mm-hmm. while the White Sox may have the higher ceiling performers, uh, the Twins, I agree with you, Jim. It seems like as far as quality of talent, it's more widespread, even though it doesn't have the same type of ceiling as some of the White Sox players do. But that's why I, I consider it a dead heat right now between the White Sox and Twins, and I give each of them 50-50 odds of winning the American League Central moving into the 2021 season. I I guess I should take that back. You can't totally discount Cleveland because weird things do happen. Um, but again, I would still put the same percentage for both Minnesota and Chicago to win the American League Central heading to the 2021 season. And on one hand, that's exciting as a White Sox fan because yes, uh, the competitive window has opened. It was opened last year. They made the postseason, and this could be a pretty special year. On the other side, as a White Sox fan, you could be disappointed because, man, there was opportunity if you're going to jump out in front of the market where the White Sox, if they had spent another 20 or $30 million and carried a $150 million payroll, Man, we wouldn't even be having this you know, conversation on who is the favorite. The White Sox would be the clear favorite moving to 2021 season, but they didn't make those types of moves. So I can understand as far as the enthusiasm and excitement, Jim, going into this season, but I could also understand the, the lot of White Sox fans that are very disappointed and really don't understand why the White Sox didn't do more this offseason to make themselves a clear-cut favorite when they easily could have done that. But I do have to say, if you just step back and you take off the Homer hat for a moment, for everybody else that's not associated with the Minnesota Twins or White Sox but covers the game or loves baseball, we do have a pretty exciting race set up between the White Sox and Twins. Yeah, I'm looking at the Zips projections, the the depth charts right now in fan graphs. And uh, I would say that the White Sox, you know, maybe are a bit underrepresented on the two war guys just because Jose Abreu comes in at 1.8. And that's a little bit weird to see for a guy who just won the MVP and justifiably so to see him below, you know, what's called league average. I understand why. And, you know, his, his 162 games the year before where he had a sub 300 OBP against righties, factors into that and I think you know it's something I have in the back of my mind but 
I would still round up and say he's better than that 1.8 war. But I think the bigger thing for me at the Twins is that they have 11 guys in their offense projected over one win. And then that's with, you know, playing time factored in. So some of those one-win guys might be two wins or better if they're pressed into regular playing time. So that's where I think a little bit of my reservation comes in is, you know, all it takes is one or two injuries or one or two guys at the same time for their lineup to be completely messed up. So that's why I'm a little bit... Uh, yeah, I still want to see what Ethan Katz has and, and how the White Sox look under him and um, just how Tony La Russa doles out playing time and it comes to allocating, um, you know, bench guys, bringing them into the mix, uh, resting guys. Yeah, still, we, a lot we don't know, but I guess until I know exactly how they go about doing what they do, I just feel like uh, they need to show me a little bit first. And I think, you know, probably after a month or two, I think I'll be able to adjust for that. What's interesting about what the Minnesota Twins have done, and for a lot of teams for that matter, this offseason, these are all one-year deals that the Twins have signed. What's what's really interesting about Colome is the pay cut that he took, Jim. He's only going to make $5 million in the 2021 season. Uh, the buyout is $1.25 million, so he's getting a guaranteed $6.25 million at least from the Minnesota Twins, but there's like a $6 million option. But Nelson Cruz, that's a one-year deal. Adrelinton Simmons, that's a one-year deal. The Jay Happ signing is a one-year deal. So for Minnesota, after the 2021 season, if they still identify these holes in the roster, they're going to have to address the these holes again next offseason. So that's just my outside perspective of outside of Minneapolis, looking at the Minnesota Twins, that it is interesting to me that they didn't make a signing like the White Sox did with Liam Hendricks, knowing that Liam Hendricks is going to be on the White Sox for the next three seasons. Uh, the the Twins are doing shortstop shortstop gap solutions right now uh, mm-hmm. for their roster, and they'll have to address these roster holes next year, either internally, hoping some of their prospects are ready to go, or they're going to have to spend more in free agency again uh, next offseason. Well, I, I think the White Sox are doing something similar, and I think it looks like a league-wide trend in some ways. Like Liam Hendricks is the only pitcher beyond uh, two years right now. I guess we'll see what Bauer goes for. But, uh, you know, the kind of longer-term contracts, three, four, five years, is just really not happening. It's like either, you know, stars or, um, you know, the the mid-range guys are having to settle for one. And I think that's why Jock Peterson took so long to sign and ended up settling with the Cubs. Uh, and I think I'm a little bit surprised by the White Sox doing the same thing. You know, Lance Lynn, I guess we'll see, you know, it seems to me like he's a guy they trade for with hoping to extend him. And then maybe, you know, given that he's on the older side, like I, I liken it to Jeff Samarja a little bit, but Samarja was different because he was in his prime. He was a, uh, staunch union guy uh wanted to test the market basically made that clear when he was with the cubs and that's why they traded him and said there's really no way he's going to sign a pre uh free agency extension and he didn't and he went to uh free agency and he made bank and it worked out well for him but the white Sox, i think were hoping to swing him a little bit with some hometown root stuff and it never really happened so Lynn being a bit older, maybe just he's had a couple of contracts under his belt already and you know no huge ones but you know a number of you know, sizable ones, seems like, uh, you know, he should be able to maybe be a bit, 
easier of a sell with that. So I'm, I'm holding that in mind. I think that's a case where if they sign him to an extension in spring training or middle of the season, then that move will make more sense. But I mean, you know, they had huge holes in Whitefield and DH and their idea for solving that is Adam Eaton. And that's weird. You know, I think that's a one-year deal with an option, but it's I, it's hard to, you know, given Rick Hahn's history with one-year contracts, I just send, tend to think it's a one-year deal based on the way they work out. And, you know, I guess they have Andrew Vaughn planned on him for a DH, but, you know, having those two big holes and no real, you know, aside from maybe Vaughn, nobody really pressing for those jobs long-term on the depth chart. That seemed to me like that's why we were stumping for George Springer or something similar, just because they had nobody coming. He wouldn't be blocking anybody. So to see the White Sox go basically short-term like the Twins are doing, just seems to be a league-wide thing. And maybe that's the CBA talking. It very well could. That, that is a good point, Jim, with the CBA. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have some CBA talk later in the show when we discuss as far as Major League Baseball making their last-ditch effort to the Players Association to make some updates for the 2021 season that has been rejected by the Players Association. But back to the White Sox, and they're bringing back Carlos Rodon. And I swear we had a podcast where we thought there's no way Carlos Rodon's coming back. And in that same podcast, we did we did also say you can never say never with the Chicago White Sox. I mean, Nikki Domonico signed a minor league deal with the Cincinnati Reds, and there was still a part of me thinking Nikki Domonico's totally signing a minor league deal with the Chicago White Sox. They can't rid themselves of Nikki Domonico, but that won't be the case. This season, but here is Carlos Rodon. He's coming back, Jim, signing a one-year, three million dollar deal. And in 2020, he pitched seven and two-thirds innings, which is 23 outs, allowing nine hits, seven earned runs, walking three, and six strikeouts. We know on how his season ended with what happened in Cleveland, and of course, what happened in game three in Oakland. So what's the thinking? of the White Sox bringing back Carlos Rodon. Yeah, when I thought that Rodon wasn't coming back, I thought that's because Rick Renteria is going to be around. <laughs> and Rick Renteria, he, he kind of managed Rodon with contempt. <laughs> I, I, I just, uh, I don't think he trusted him. I don't think he liked having on the roster. And, and almost, you know, it was hard to tell, like the last week or two, it, it seemed like Rodon or the, or the way Renteria managed Rodon, it was more or less like just either a lack of composure or a lack of, or maybe, or maybe uh, a frustration with the front office, not providing him better options, but seemed like somebody was trying to show somebody up there. And that's why I think one of the reasons why Renteria ended up getting fired was that just the kind of way the, the roster and Renteria to a, an extent unraveled towards the end. So, you know, when you're talking about Rodon and thinking about his future, I just thought, yeah, I can't see Renteria finding another way to use him. I can't see the White Sox wanting to give uh, Rodon to Renteria. Like, it doesn't end well. So I, that's why I thought. And uh, I didn't really think Rodon was going to be a factor with, you know, Tony Russa just because at that point, after hitting free agency, I thought, you know, there are rosters around baseball, like, you know, see Carson Fulmer get a bunch of chances. Just some rebuilding team needing innings, needing interesting arms might be a, a place to sign him. So I am surprised to see the White Sox still sign him just because, yeah, I wrote about this is that, when we were talking about the kind of pitching depth the White Sox could acquire, and, and you know, I kept bringing up Jose Quintana, but uh, partially because of that familiarity, and I think uh, the White Sox proved my thinking correct just with the wrong guy by signing the guy they know. Um, 
it, it was, I was thinking they just need a guy who's around, a guy who's, you know, can throw 30 starts. Maybe you don't need all those from him, but is around to where if Lopez is bad, if Cease is bad, if uh, Dallas Keuchel's you know, has a stiff neck. If Michael Kopech is uh, off his game for whatever reason, you know, if, if Giolito has one of his weird injuries that flare up, just you have that steadying force there in the back end of the rotation. I think they got burned by Gio Gonzalez being an injury uh, case to where, you know, he wasn't available when the White Sox needed him. So I thought they're going to go for more stability, somebody with maybe a lower ceiling, or in the case of Garrett Richards, somebody with maybe a higher ceiling, but you can't count on him realizing it. And be that steady presence. So to see Rodon come in and Rodon, you know, if he gets 60 innings, that's kind of a good year for him. And he hasn't been available in the White Sox thought he would be because, you know, they floated him as a, oh, he's going to be like our trade deadline acquisition. He's going to be like an offseason addition. Just, they've always kind of had him in mind coming back from these injuries as somebody they're going to have back. And they don't need to trade for a guy because they have him coming back. And he never delivers on that promise. You know, maybe he had one stretch of uh, 18 starts where he was good, but couldn't ultimately follow up on it in a meaningful way. So to see him come back, you know, with the same expectations, with the same, uh, or maybe not same expectations, but he's our pitching addition. He's our back-end pitching addition. We're going to have him as depth. And I just don't see him as depth because he's the guy who's, you know, condition required depth. <laughs> it's uh, it's like, uh, well, you know, the phrase is fighting fire with fire, but it's like trying to extinguish fire with fire. You just add more fire to it by uh, shoring up uh some injury and inconsistency concerns with a guy who's either injured or inconsistent. So that's why I really don't get it. I think the idea is that he still has, you know, when he can pitch, he's okay. His velocity was better than I think people thought it was going to be. So maybe there's upside there. Maybe Ethan Katz is a variable that will get more out of Rodon. Uh, maybe Tony Arusa being somebody who plays people to their strengths, has their reputation. Maybe he doesn't get frustrated with Rodon or doesn't try to, uh, you know, ram a, square peg into a round hole and just sees him as a way to get creative uh, with three or four innings at a time. You know, it's hard to say, but I'm just, you know, not really impressed by the move just because uh, it feels like this is like fool me four times at this point. Yeah. It's uninspiring to bring back Carlos Rodon. My take with the Rodon returning is that for White Sox fans, Watching this organization, the White Sox must feel comfortable eating this amount of cash because expectations should be super low for Carlos Rodon. Perhaps he is the number five starter to start the 2021 season for the Chicago White Sox instead of Ronaldo Lopez. It's Giolito, Lynn, Keuchel, Cease, and Rodon. But if Rodon keeps coming out with his 2020 performance that the White Sox don't hesitate and they swap out Rodon with Lopez or Kopech, depending on how confident they feel one of those two can step in and try to solidify the back end of the starting rotation. That this is just $3 million. It's a $3 million lottery ticket. If he can somehow return to his 2018 form, that's great. We can get, you know, that's that's positive value, surplus value out of the contract we signed with Carlos Rodon. But if Rodon can't stay healthy or his performance is still terrible like it was in 2020, we'll quickly cut him and it's no big deal because it's just $3 million. Now, for an organization that cries financially tapped, 
based on their public uh, public agent, uh, Bob Nightingale of USA Today, mm-hmm. uh, you could probably spend that $3 million more wisely. But that's just how I feel is that expectations are super low. This is kind of reminding me of Matt Latos in a way, Jim. The White Sox might get five starts out of Carlos Rodon. And I fully expect either Ronaldo Lopez or Michael Kopech to replace Carlos Rodon. And I don't know if we're even talking about Carlos Rodon in the second half of the season. To me, the uh, guy who comes to mind is Rich Hill. Um, the same kind of expectations, you know, it's a quite different set of circumstances with Hill. He's older. He's, you know, towards the end of his career, still has swing and miss stuff. But between, you know, he had Tommy John surgery, I think, and he had blister problems. Like, you never know when he's going to be available or how long he's going to be good for start to start, you know, week to week, month to month. It, it's hard to tell with him. So you just try to get the quality innings you get out of him when he's around. And I think it's the same idea, just with less of a track record with Rodon. And I, I think, you know, should spring training happen and Rodon looks somewhat promising, I think he is going to be the fifth starter just because I think the attitude has to be that whenever he's healthy and functional and getting you know, five innings of decent ball. You just have to go with it because he could get hurt. Um, he could get hurt in, uh, out of the bullpen. He could get hurt in AAA if somehow he ended up down there, which I don't think he will be, but uh, unless he's on a rehab start. But just basically you just have to throw him when he can be thrown uh, and, and you feel okay about it. And then just save the other guys for later just because, you know, you know Lopez got hurt last year and Cease has been inconsistent. Kopech's been, um, you know, dealing with a lot of stuff over the course of the last few years. But I think Rodon's just, he has a history of just not being able to get to the post the way the other guys don't yet. You know, they're, they're more reliable when they're healthy. It's either a big injury or they're able to show up. Rodon just had a bunch of different things sap his performance. So yeah, if he's, you know, last week of spring training and he's throwing five decent innings and Lopez is throwing five decent innings, I think Rodon is just going to be the guy just because I find there's less reason to trust him handling a move to the bullpen well. So just maybe just try to get those starts out of him and then go week to week. See how he's holding up. You know, have somebody in your back pocket ready to go. Somebody mildly stretched out to where it's not going to be a huge adjustment and go from there. Yeah, the White Sox don't really have a need for another left-handed reliever for the projected 2021 bullpen. So this doesn't work out. Again, Carlos Rodon as the fifth starter. I'm not expecting the White Sox to have a very long leash with him. Mm-hmm. And when they cut it, it it's done. They're just going to cut him like we've seen with other starting pitchers. How long did Derek Collin last? Did he last the entire season? Uh, until September. Uh, they cut him like in September, I think, which was really, uh, I think, the... Um, you know, probably most insulting way to do it. Not, you know, they, they couldn't find a taker for him at the trade deadline, couldn't find um, uh, a home on waiver. So in early September, he said, uh, we're done with you. And then uh, I forget who got hurt. I think, yeah, I think maybe it was Rodon who got hurt. And so they had to go to Chris Volstad. They just got to go to whoever was around in AAA, whoever just got done pitching to get through the rest of the year because they actually needed somebody like Holland. So it was, they cut him for, you know, probably just wanting to be done with him. And then that ended up biting him in the butt. Yeah, well, this is not a rebuilding season. So I don't, I, again, my expectations for Carlos Rodon are super low in the sense of I think he's going to get cut sometime 
in the first half of the season when the White Sox may have better options available and that Michael Kopech replaces him in the starting rotation. And then what do you do with Carlos Rodon? I just don't see a, a fit on this roster for him. So we'll see how long he lasts. But, you know, we talked about as far as left-handers in the bullpen. We're going to continue that aspect of the conversation as Jim and I have to take a quick break with a word from our sponsors. But coming up next, we will discuss how the Chicago White Sox could be using lefty Garrett Crochet and possible opening day DH Andrew Vaughn this upcoming season. Spring is calling and Target's ready with deals for your outdoor space. Grab miracle Grow Potting Mix on sale at two for $8. Plus get 20% off planters and more. Find spring's best outdoor buys at Target where low prices and great deals make it easy to save. Restrictions apply. The Chicago White Sox announced changes to their front office and minor league affiliate coaching staffs. This week, Chris Getz gets a new title. Instead of director of player development, Getz is now assistant general manager player development. Former major leaguer Wes Helms is still slotted to be the AAA manager for the White Sox, while Justin Gershley will manage the AA affiliate whenever Charlotte, Birmingham, Winston-Salem, and Kannapolis sign their agreements with Major League Baseball if they sign, to be determined on that front. But with Getz getting a new title, he answered a few questions with the media, and he got peppered about two players in particular, Gary Crochet and Andrew Vaughn. It makes sense. The gossip and rumors we've been hearing is that Crochet is lined up to be with the White Sox on opening day, part of their bullpen, and Vaughn eventually will be the Chicago White Sox DH in 2021. But Getz did shine some light on what the White Sox thinking is, handling both Crochet and Vaughn moving forward. On the topic of Andrew Vaughn from James Fegan of The Athletic, Chris Getz was asked what he would say if the front office asks him if Andrew Vaughn is major league ready at DH. Getz said, quote, I wouldn't be surprised if that question is asked. I would certainly share with them that he is ready to help this team, end quote. On Garrett Crochet from Vinny Duber of NBC Sports Chicago, Chris Getz said that Garrett Crochet is likely ticketed for multi-inning relief role in 2021 with hope that he'd be ready to transition to starting in 2022 perhaps if all goes ideally without needing any time to work as a starter in the minor leagues. Let's start with Andrew Vaughn first. And Jim, on the last podcast with Dan Zaborski, I asked him about Vaughn being the White Sox primary DH without playing the minors last year, he thought it was a very risky proposition, but the most likely scenario with the White Sox, if they are not going to go out and sign Nelson Cruz or Marcelo Zuna, how do you feel about Andrew Vaughn being the primary DH, not just for the 2021 season, getting the bulk of at bats at DH, but the possibility that Andrew Vaughn could be the primary DH on opening day. Well, on one hand, I would appreciate that they didn't manipulate service time, um, you know, given all we've discussed about that and all we've, you know, argued about it and said how it's how the White Sox have been held back a little bit by slow rolling out uh, guys making their major league debut like Eloy Jimenez and, and you know, Nick Madrigal a little bit when it comes to like speed of the game stuff, defense, both for Jimenez and Madrigal. It seemed like I would have preferred to have that August-September work to get the jitters out to learn what needs to be done in the offseason and, and not leave it to opening day or the first weeks of the season. Um, 
So I, I didn't really, you know, I'm, I'm happy or I would be happy that the White Sox set that aside. Um, but in this case, just I, it would also make the least sense to set aside service time like this just because, you know, my attitude is that, you know, one, I would like to see the White Sox have more bats than spots to open the season. Like, I think that would be a terrific problem to have if, like, Andrew Vaughn can't get in right away because, you know, they sign, say, a Nelson Cruz or they, you know, or the equivalent of just a one-year DH type. That, you know, so what if Andrew Vaughn has to start in Charlotte? Like, that's not a problem. That's uh, He hasn't played above A ball. He hasn't shown that he can damage pitchers not wearing the same uniform um, who are trying to embarrass him. We've talked about that before. So I wouldn't mind seeing him just do some damage for a month and show that he can turn around, you know, upper level pitching, you know, pitching with better finesse, better command. And if he does it, great. You know, make room for him. Or if they can't make room for him, that's a terrific problem. Uh to leave it in Vaughn's hands, I think, for a bat-only position. Like, the thing with, like, Luis Robert giving him starts an opening day is if he can't, you know, if he has, like, a really hot and cold approach at the plate and has bad weeks at time, he can still play center field. Like, he can still be a plus center fielder, bat him in the bottom half of the order, and you have somebody who's contributing somehow. Um, with Vaughn, you know, if he's not hitting, he's not doing anything. Uh, there's just no way for him to help. And that's why I think there's a lot of pressure to put that uh, all in a guy who's DHing, you know, basically have his worth come down to his days worth of plate appearances when he's seeing major league pitching for the first time, upper level pitching for the first time. I just don't really get it. I mean, that's and I and I don't think I'm thinking less of Vaughn for thinking that way. Oh, I don't think so. I, I just think that if they believe the White Sox as the they believe that he has seen enough major league baseball quality pitching from his short time with spring training 2.0 and Schaumburg. <laughs> I got a lot of questions. Uh, it's just that he's not going to have that same type of tra- track record. And even Dan spoke about it and you could see it in Pakoda and you could see it in zips. The projection systems are not high in Andrew Vaughn because they don't have anything to work off. Right, they mm-hmm. they have a little time at Canapolis and they have a little time in Winston Salem. Wasn't the best performance, understandably so. It was a very long season for him, starting the year with Cal and then having to move across country after getting drafted uh, to go play minor league baseball in North Carolina. Not getting a chance to play last season, but it does sound like Chris Getz is pretty darn confident in Andrew Vaughn's ability to hit in the major league level. And our show poll, which you could follow us on Twitter, we're at Sox Machine, and you could follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. And I just asked as far as our followers, Jim, will Andrew Vaughn be on the White Sox opening day roster? And I don't know if it's just a sense of optimism or hype or this is what fans want, but 64.5% said yes, that they think Vaughn will be on the opening day roster. And I'm with you. I am uneasy about this type of idea. I think it could have some serious consequences and could really backfire if he's hitting like 200 come 4th of July. And it just seems that he's really struggling in the majors to hit. And we have seen top prospects within the White Sox just hit a wall mentally and never are able to recover. Uh, Gordon Beckham is probably the best example of that. And I would hate that to happen to somebody like Andrew Vaughn. 
And I really wish the team would spend some money so they could avoid this particular risk. But I kind of side with the fans here, Jim. I get the sense that after Chris Getz spoke that if Rick Hahn looks at Getz after spring training and if Vaughn hits in spring training and now Hahn's asking his assistant general manager, hey, do you think Vaughn can stick? It sounds like Getz is going to tell Hahn, yeah, he can stick. And we're going to see Andrew Vaughn in the opening day lineup, Jim. Yeah, it, I think the one difference between like when I'm when I'm thinking about it, like with with Vaughn, is that thinking back to his spring training at bats, spring training 1.0, where he's facing you know decent pitching on the other side, is that his at bats are good. Like the batting eye is there. Yeah, I think the what what upper level pitching and major league pitching can do for him is put him on the ropes faster. Like you know, get him into O2 counts faster. You know, he might take a a first pitch more often than maybe he should as he learns the strike zone. And, you know, I think it's impressive the way he can battle down 0-2 and foul pitches off. The thing, you know, the two things I think of is one that, you know, he, I, I don't think watching him from game to game, it would look like he's struggling. I think it's something you'd notice in the numbers like, oh, you know, he's hitting, you know, 220, 290, you know, 370 or something like that. Just like the bats don't look bad. He's just not getting, he must be hitting the bad luck and just... No, he's just not quite damaging anything yet. Like, he's not quite being able to get the bat head, you know, in front of the plate on Major League stuff. He's on the defensive. And the thing I think about is, like, the White Sox, whenever they've been calling guys up before, and, and part of the reason for, uh, you know, the, the reason they defended service time manipulation or the excuse they'd use is that we don't want to send guys back down. Like, they, they've been adamant about that <laughs> when they call up, you know, Luis Robert, Nick Madrigal, Eloy Jimenez. Um you know, even Gordon Beckham the first time when he was struggling, they just did not want to send him back down. They just felt that was not, he's either counterproductive or could do, uh, uh, you know, if they struggle in AAA, maybe then what does that say? Like how much does that affect their confidence? They, it seems like they think that players should be able to play through at the major league level. Well, if you have that going on and you just have a guy who can only contribute with his bats, you know, that's really just, uh, it seems like setting him up for, uh, failure unnecessarily, like just having one bat in front of him for a couple months just to make sure you protect him from that outcome seems like it'd be very generous in spirit <laughs> and also very generous to Tony Larusa and the fan base that you just don't have to hope that the nine guys you have are the nine guys who last the season. Uh, that That's what's, I think, frustrating me about that is that they just are putting all this hope on him when really he should be the first guy up. You know, should Jose Abreu get hit by a pitch mm-hmm. in the wrong way and he need to sit down? Or, you know, should, you know, if they sign Nelson Cruz for hands, or should just veteran bat, uh, pull an oblique, swinging, you know, uh, Vaughn's the first guy up. <laughs> you know, just have him be that, uh, you know, oh, this is not an emergency. This is an opportunity. That's what I wish they had. That's why I wish they had more bats in the spot, just to have that kind of attitude to where, uh, you know, like I'd like to feel at least in one small way, like the Dodgers fans must feel whenever somebody gets hurt and realize, oh, we've had a guy in the DL on purpose for this occasion. <laughs> we've been manipulating <laughs> here. We'll just wait two days for him to come off the injured list and we'll have five starters again, or we'll have a full lineup again. Like this is, that's, I think, uh, what I wish the White Sox would have for at least like one position and they never quite get there. No. Well, right now, if it's not Andrew Vaughn as the primary DH or taking those at bats right away on opening day, we could be looking at your Mercedes and Zach Collins. So in a way, Jim, we're going to have one of these spring training battles, quote unquote, and monitoring on how well your Mercedes looks at the plate 
how well Zach Collins looks at the plate and how well Andrew Vaughn's looking at the plate. And we're, we're not yeah. supposed to, you know, take a lot from spring training performances. You know, they're not great indicators of success in the regular season, but man, if Mercedes and Collins look off or they look slow or they look behind everything in spring training and Vaughn's tearing it up, I think that drum beat's only going to get louder from White Sox fans and probably from the media of, hey, you are expected to contend. You got to win on day one. And if Andrew Vaughn gives you the best chance to win on day one based on the roster that you have, why not have him on the opening day roster? That could be a conversation we're going to be having, Jim, in late March as we go into opening day on April 1st. Well, the thing is, like, I don't even want it to come down to Mercedes because if it does, like, that would just make me more upset about the way they've managed him the last two seasons. Like, they didn't call him up when Wellington Castillo was on the roster and getting playing time for no good reason. They didn't call him up when Edwin Encarnacion was doing nothing. Like, they just, they had opportunities to play him, see what the... Triple A production and the spring training excitement's all about, and they just never did it. So to have the DH uh, position kind of go back to him on opening day wouldn't excite me anymore. Like I'd almost say, like go with Vaughn, just because why are you just yanking him and us around for if you just haven't felt the need to explore it when the performance was there before? But yeah, it's it's uh you know I think it's just kind of just the way the White Sox operate, in which they just can't quite get over um the hump when it comes to just putting their roster building beyond reproach it just always feels like um you have to be aware of these trap doors and the way the these things can unravel because they've unraveled before and guys have underperformed guys have gotten hurt um you know just bad luck in terms of timing who's healthy who's available when and just I would really like to not see it come down to hitting on all these iffy situations or even like 75% of them because the White Sox have been batting much lower than that. Okay, so while Jim and I and a lot of people around baseball view the idea of having Andrew Vaughn be the primary DH in opening day for the Chicago White Sox as a very risky choice, I do agree with the White Sox direction on handling Garrett Crochet, Jim. For those that were... Lucky question mark enough to see my rant on the, from the one Oh eight virtual fest uh, that took place instead of socks fest. Cause socks fest got canceled. Uh, and you know, we're good friends with the, from the one Oh eight. Thank you guys for having us on. It was, it was a blast. Uh, I had a very lengthy rant about the white Sox use of Garrett crochet and what's the best idea. And I think for 2021 that, I think what Chris Getz said totally makes sense to me. Make him your multi-inning relief guy. I think he's got the potential to be a Josh Hader, Andrew Miller type of reliever. And we know how valuable those guys have been, Jim, especially in the postseason. In past postseason runs for the Milwaukee Brewers, getting to Game 7 of the National League Championship Series. And of course, Cleveland with Andrew Miller one game away from winning the world series as Miller really picked up a lot of innings during their postseason run. So I agree with the white Sox plan in 2021 of having Garrett crochet in their line, in their bullpen for opening day and using him in that relief role. 
I will disagree that I don't think he's ever going to be a starter in the major leagues. Uh, obviously, you want that carrot out in front of him, so he's working towards something. So I can understand mm-hmm. why Getz is saying, yeah, we'll contemplate transitioning him to starting pitching in 2022 without any time to work as a starter in the minor leagues. Well, that's a stupid idea. Maybe you should try to extend him to like five innings, not, hey, how about you throw two innings every third day? Uh, and then try to go and get him to throw a hundred pitches, uh, at least five innings every fifth day. I, I think that's just a recipe for disaster. And I think ultimately Garrett Crochet is going to be this dangerous left-handed reliever for the Chicago White Sox for years to come. I think he's going to be a great weapon out of their bullpen and just keep him in that spot because this is what he's been groomed for since his sophomore year at Tennessee. But from your perspective, Jim, what gets said about Garrett Crochet and how he could be used in 2021 and in the future, how do you feel about the White Sox plan for Garrett Crochet? I think in most seasons, I would prefer to see him go down to the minors, just try to start, you know, in an earnest attempt to groom him as a starter in Winston-Salem, work your way up. I, th- I think the returns would be pretty obvious if he doesn't have the command or if the velocity doesn't hold up past three innings or doesn't have the, you know, like say by the time he gets to Birmingham, like doesn't have a third pitch that uh, fools guys as his you know premium fastball wears off after 60 or so pitches, then you could just say, okay, we'll, we'll give up on that and just shift him to bullpen work. Um, and, and he can pretend like every appearance is like the first couple innings of a, a start. Uh, but given that there is no, minor league schedule yet given that the minor league affiliates are not yet official given just the massive uncertainty uh, i think probably you know using in the bullpen in a managed role uh but also one where it does give him some high leverage work or does you know, allow him to do some you know one man setup work or bridge work himself to the ninth inning himself uh while you know playing him to his strengths and not throwing him in the deep end and having him bite off more innings or tougher parts of the lineup than he can chew, I think is probably the next best thing. Um, I hesitate to draw or indulge Chris Sale comparisons because I think that keeps getting the White Sox in trouble. Like after they, um, you know, after they drafted Chris Sale and had him turn into a annual Cy Young finalist, uh, despite 10 innings in the minors and one year in the bullpen, uh, you know, they, they tried to fast track Carlos Rodon, didn't work, never developed the routine, got hurt frequently, you know, just, failed um you know Carson Fulmer uh was not even good in the minor leagues never quite figured it out there his attempts to stick in the majors were uh a failure and now he's bouncing around the majors Tyler Danish never could quite get there with his unorthodox delivery like every time they've drawn Chris Sale comparisons since drafting Chris Sale fast tracking guys unorthodox deliveries um you know guys who are said to be not a starter like in the case of Rodon or, or Fulmer I should say in Danish uh, it's held, it's held true. Like the doubts have held up. Um, the outside evaluations have won. So I really don't like the idea of drawing more Chris Sale comparisons because I think we've just seen how hard it is to be Chris Sale, on the, especially on that Chris Sale timeline. So I think I'm content to say, well, the season, you know, the, the pandemic being what it is, the schedules being what they are, the White Sox immediate aspirations being what they are. Everything seems to say like the best use of Garrett Crochet is in the bullpen. If they can somehow see a way out of it to more, more innings, more responsibility, great. But 
I really wouldn't force at this point. I think try to go for the Josh Hader route or the Andrew Miller route, like, you know, two innings at a time. I think carefully manage it first, like maybe not back-to-back days of two innings, you know, work him into the six-month grind. But if he's showing no signs of wear, I think it's smart to do like they did last time around and just slowly over the course of the season ramp up the degree of difficulty and the responsibility given him and see if there's any breaking points give him some rest if need be you know use that uh you know use the ability to option him down as a way to give him breaks but uh until we see more certainty in the minors and understanding what's there for pitchers who are on the cusp of being in the majors i think if if there's a way to use him in the majors uh definitely in one way or another and i think you, you can definitely say that with, with crochet then I think you put them in the majors and then see how the rest of it shakes out. But the difference, though, and this is part of my rant from the from the 108, and I'm going to keep – this is the drum I'm going to keep beating. Garrett Crochet was not a starting pitcher at Tennessee. He was mm-hmm. not groomed to be a starting pitcher. They thought it was more valuable – if they could have Garrett Crochet pitch in multiple games in a weekend series, especially in conference play, and that's how they used him in the postseason. Garrett Crochet appeared in 36 games at the University of Tennessee, and he only started 12 of those games. He made six starts his freshman year, and he made six starts his sophomore year. And then in his sophomore year, when Tennessee made it into uh, the tournament, uh, into the postseason, they used him out of the bullpen, especially in the fourth, fifth innings to try to eat up as many of those high leverage innings as possible to keep Tennessee in the game. Chris Sale appeared in 14 games his sophomore year, started 12. He appeared in 17 games his junior year, started 15. He threw over 100 innings his junior year in college. Chris Sale was groomed to be a starting pitcher in college. And the White Sox had him in the bullpen, but at least Sale had that that experience and that understanding of what it took to ramp up to be a starter, to have the expectation to go five innings or more. Crochet doesn't have that. He didn't do it at Tennessee, and he's not going to do it with the White Sox in 2021. I just don't think there's a switch there, but I'm okay with that. I think there is mm-hmm. nothing wrong if Garrett Crochet becomes your version of Josh Hader or Andrew Miller. I really don't, Jim. And there will be some that say, why did you use such a high draft pick then for an, a reliever? And I would counter, look at free agency, man. These guys are not cheap. Pitchers of the caliber of Garrett Crochet are not cheap at all. And if you have the ability to have this elite reliever in your bullpen, a lefty that throws 100 plus miles per hour and has an incredible slider, we're talking 60 to 70 grade type of slider. He's got a terrific two pitch mix. Just run with it for six years. You got control of him for six years. Just run with it. Enjoy the surplus value and enjoy having the opportunity to have one of the strongest bullpens in Major League Baseball for multiple seasons. I don't see any problem with that. And if the White Sox want to try next year to be a starter, I guess you can try it. I just don't think it's going to be successful. And I think he's going to have a great 2021. This is me being optimistic about one of the White Sox players coming into the season. I think Eric Crochet will have a great 2021 in this role. And I hope that Chris Getz and Rick Hahn look at each other after this season and just tell themselves, why mess with a good thing? 
Let's just keep him in the in this role. It helps us. It helps him. And we could worry about something else. Well, you know more about college baseball and like the depth of teams than I do. But one pitcher who came to mind when it comes to uh, somebody who was using the bullpen, but then shifted to starting in the in pro ball was Dane Dunning. Mm-hmm. And that was just because Florida's rotation was so deep. Very deep. That uh, he couldn't, uh, you know, there was just no oxygen for a guy like Dunning. He didn't have the kind of frontline stuff to get there. So they figured he was best used as like the, I think he closed for Correct. him. But was Crochet a victim of similar depth no. or no? No. Okay. No. That Florida pitching staff, Jim, their Friday, Saturday, and Sunday starters when Dane Dunning was the closer for them were first round picks. Yeah. I mean, the Florida Gators had four first-round picks out of that pitching staff. Yep. Tennessee so did I, not I have the that. same I, I talent. Just, no. Okay. No. And that, that was part of my rant. Uh, Tennessee is not one of the elite baseball programs in the SEC. I just had to vote in the top 25. Nine of the 11 schools in the SEC are ranked in the top 25. Tennessee is not one of the nine. Okay. So again, there wasn't like this amazing starting pitching staff that was the front of Garrett Crochet. No, he was their best pitcher and they just figured that it was best for him to use him every, you know, try to use him every single game to throw a couple of innings just because of his elite stuff rather than try to groom him to be a starter. Makes sense. And again, that's, that's why you got to pay attention to how college programs develop players. You really do. And that's why look at this look at the the polls for the preseason for college baseball. We'll talk about this in a couple of weeks when we preview the season and it really launches our MLB draft coverage. Florida's number 1, Vanderbilt's number 3, UCLA's back in the top 5. You're going to continue to hear these same schools over and over and over again. It's because a lot of these college coaches now, especially for the elite programs, are adopting some of the player development models and methods from Major League Baseball because they know they can go to these parents and say, hey, if you can't get a $4 million signing bonus, come to me. I will help your sons develop into a major leaguer. And they have the, they have the track record, especially Vanderbilt in your backyard now, Jim. They got two mm-hmm. top five prospects in their starting rotation: Akuma Rocker and Jack Leader. So, yeah, it, Gary Crochet did not have that, and it is disappointing. That's the way that Tennessee used him, but I think the White Sox should use him for this season and for future seasons because there is tremendous value. It's what he knows. It's what he's really good at. So just put him in a position to succeed. And you keep mentioning this with Tony La Russa. I think La Russa will use Crochet in that manner and it'll tremendously help the White Sox. We'll see. Again, these are some of the conversations we're going to have, especially during our spring training previews for weeks to come. How is Andrew Vaughn doing compared to the other competition for DH? And uh, can Garrett Crochet stay healthy and his arm doesn't bark on him like it did in Oakland and what that bullpen looks like. But it is very exciting to talk about these type of talents that the White Sox have to join already their very talented core in Andrew Vaughn and in Garrett Crochet. But we're going to take one last break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the plan for 2021 for Major League Baseball and Nolan Arenado heading to St. Louis next on the Sox Machine Podcast. 
Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. Major League Baseball made a last-ditch proposal to the Players Association this week for a 154-game schedule, postseason expansion like we saw in 2020, and universal DH. The Players Association said no, and quite frankly, we shouldn't assume that any attempts by the league further to make changes to the current CBA uh, are going to pass. They're all going to be rejected by the players moving forward. That's how I see the relationship is. Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic uh, reported that the Biden administration has spoken to Major League Baseball. The Players Association did not take that call because they do not want to feel pressured by the federal government to take Major League Baseball's deal. That's what's going on behind the scenes between the league and the player. So what does this mean? It means that we are on track for a 162-game season with opening day still scheduled for April 1st. The Chicago White Sox home opener is April 8th. Will there be fans for these games? Well, that in Chicago, it's going to be up to Mayor Lori Lightfoot to decide if she's going to allow fans for home White Sox games. But without postseason expansion, we are back to a five-playoff team format, three division winners and two wild cards playing a one-game playoff game to move on to the divisional series. This makes the measured White Sox offseason being restricted by a low payroll budget possibly dooming. If they don't win the American League Central, the White Sox will be competing against strong AL East teams like the Blue Jays and Rays and possibly contender from the American League West. An 18 playoff format gives you some slack to work with in case if you don't win the division. So, Jim, based on what Major League Baseball proposed and getting that shut down, we're going back to the 2019 format of the season. Are you happy things are returning to a five-team playoff? Or is there a compromise that both sides could find a way to agree on after this CBA expires after the 2021 season? Well, I think for this season, it's going to be a five-team playoff. I think it's just too lucrative for the league for the players to give it up easily or give it up like on short notice uh, as part of just a uh, kind of slapdash negotiations at the last minute. I'd be skeptical that the uh, that the union would give in for something that substantial. And that's why I think like the league is so, you know, by their standards, uh, the league made a reasonable attempt at a proposal just by saying like, we're going to delay the season by a month. 154 games would pay you for 162. Like the, they didn't offer like any kind of prorating or or uh, cheaping out in that regard. But the money just on the back end in that extra postseason uh, action for the uh, their TV partners just so lucrative that you know the union probably can extract more. And just the way they uh, yeah the league managed negotiations last year and just how they slow rolled it with. Uh, you know, trying to get as few games in as possible and just taking their time, you know, with, with, um, bad offers. And then, you know, the league or the union shooting it down and the league coming back and trying to drum up public sentiment by saying, uh, uh, how could you shoot this down? Or, you know, it just, it, it was really trying to play public sentiment. We're seeing the same thing here too, with just, uh, the league asking for the players to give up too much, the players, you know, offering, or saying no and without a counter offer just because their hand right now is very strong. And 
uh, it, it probably will never be that strong again. And given how the league has worked the union over on every kind of advantage it has on the CBA, it only seems fair for the union to do the same thing. Like if, if they've been dealt with in bad faith for years, you can't assume any kind of um, you know fair dealing on a very hurried basis to disrupt what players have been preparing for for months. Like you know, pitchers have been tuning up for a February 17th start time. Uh, hitters are less contingent. You know, their health doesn't quite ride on it the same way. But all these players have been working hard for this date. So to have it kind of just be this, you know, the league considering a trivial thing that can be pushed back and uh, interrupted seems like uh, unreasonable. So it doesn't strike me as uh, surprising or unfair or unreasonable that the union would shoot it down and just, you know, maintain its originally held plans. And I'm fine with that. Like, I think it does make it harder for the White Sox to make the postseason, but you know, it's 2021. The White Sox should be ready for this by now. So if they don't get it, tough. I think moving forward between the league and the Players Association, I do think it is beneficial for the Players Association to see some type of playoff expansion if only it means that they get a share of the television money from the postseason. Yes. So if baseball wants to expand the postseason, I, I think six teams make sense. The top two seeds, they get a bye. They get four or five days off to benefit there. Your bullpen gets rested. You get to set your starting rotation while you see the third and the sixth seed and the fourth and the fifth seeds of your league battle in a three-game playoff. Uh, ESPN could broadcast those games, and there is a pool of TV money that goes to all the participating players for the entire postseason, and they get that additional cut on top of the cut that they get from the gate. Uh, if they're just if the owners are just going to strictly stick with the you're only going to get gate revenue uh, during the postseason, then there's no need for the players association to even contemplate expanding the playoffs because there's really nothing in it for them while watching the owner sign a billion dollar contract with ESPN. So ESPN can yeah. have be have the exclusive rights to, you know, broadcast those playoff games. So unless they get the TV money, I don't see the players association sign off an expanded postseason. Uh, if they can't get the TV money, then great. We're going to have expanded postseason after this year. Uh, I do think that Universal DH helps the Players Association, helps the older players continue to get jobs and expand their market, especially when you look at players like Nelson Cruz and uh, current free agent still Marcel Azuna. But obviously there needs to be some type of exchange. Like, what do we have to give up as the Players Association to Major League Baseball to have Universal DH? And also point out, there are some National League teams that really need a DH Great examples, the Milwaukee Brewers, after they signed Colton Wan to be their second baseman for the next couple of seasons. And they have uh, Heston Kiera, uh, their former first-round pick. Now they're thinking about moving him off second base and moving him over to first base. They really need a DH because they'll just DH him. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of National League teams that would like to have the DH, but... I'm curious in what the league wants from the players association to have that universal DH. But I think these are going to be pretty big talking points that we, as the fans know about the conversations going on with the CBA. I'm not the biggest fan of the five team playoff, but if 
I think it impacts the way the White Sox went into this offseason. Because if you went into this offseason thinking, oh, they're just going to expand the postseason again. There's going to be eight teams that make it. So you don't have to do much uh, this offseason to enhance your odds. You feel confident that you're one of the top eight teams. Uh, no, <laughs> you need to be one of the top five teams uh, to make the postseason. So I expect there will be more sellers at the trade deadline, and I expect the buyers will really have to buy at the trade deadline in July, and that will include the Chicago White Sox. You will not be able to afford sitting out the trade deadline this time around to make the postseason. Uh, so there will be something to add to the calendar of what to watch for and see how Rick Hahn can approve the roster uh, before the July trade deadline uh, as the White Sox will need to enhance their roster uh, especially if it's just a five-team playoff. It's unfortunate that it's an icy relationship between both parties right now, and uh, I expect that to continue on after this season, Jim, and I'm still expecting some type of lockout or player strike uh, during the offseason, and that will really put a hamper in how quickly the offseason moves. Yep, but you know the way I look at it is the White Sox should be thinking central or bust. They really do. Exactly. I'm, you are right. That's the and, right and, thinking. Yeah. And it should be like, you know, the, the expectation should be that they should be at this point in the rebuild or post rebuild, the best team in the division. That should be where this has gotten them. Exactly. No sympathy. No sympathy. Uh, speaking, no quarter. speaking of no sympathy, I don't have sympathy for the Colorado Rockies front office. And this will be our last topic for this podcast episode. Uh, obviously, major news. Nolan Arenado. He's one of my favorite players to watch. I talk about this on the show all the time. He is my favorite non-White Sox player to watch. I just love the way that he approaches the game and how hard he plays. And, you know, for the Colorado Rockies, not really having that type of face of the franchise, to have Nolan Arenado emerge, especially after the Matt Holiday days and the Todd Helton days, uh, was great for them. And I watch a lot of Rockies baseball because, again, I like watching Nolan Arenado. Well, I guess I'm going to be watching a lot of St. Louis Cardinals baseball, Jim, uh, as he's been traded to the Cardinals. And this trade is really mind-blowing. I can't believe the Rockies are giving the Cardinals $50-plus million to pay for Arenado in exchange for five prospects that Keith Law of The Athletic and Eric Loggenhagen of Fangraphs don't think they have much of a chance to provide an impact to the majors. Like, really? Really? You have to pay $50 million to move Nolan Arenado? That just seems crazy to me. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, did you catch that press conference with uh, Dick uh, Manfort, the owner of the Rockies? Yeah, I saw some clips here and there. Or in some, the, I, I read more than I saw. I'll put it that way. Yeah, the Rockies GM, Jeff Breidich. Yep. So the owner, Dick Manfort, said that he doubted making the move 10 times in the week up to pulling the trigger to deal Arenado. And he understands the fans' anger for trading away the face of the franchise. Okay, if you are not 100% sure on pulling the trigger to move the face of the franchise, you probably shouldn't do it. And, you know, with Bry Ditch, uh, Mark Saxon, MLB reporter, tweeted, I heard an agent recently describe Rockies GM Jeff Breidich as the worst communicator in Major League Baseball. And that seems to be a big aspect of this whole thing with, no with Nolan Arenado. 
And again, I, I feel bad for Rockies fans right now, Jim. They are a loyal fan base. Denver's a great setting for baseball. If you haven't been to Coors Field yet, make your way there. You'll have a great time. But this Arenado trade, I mean, just a couple years after signing him to a mega long-term deal is a huge gut punch to their fan base. I don't know why Jeff Breidich still has a job after what's transpired. St. Louis Cardinals fans have to be thrilled. I mean, they got Paul Goldschmidt last year, and now they're getting mm-hmm. Nolan Arenado. But here's what, here's what I'm wondering, other than why does Jeff Breidich still have a job? Who should Rick Hahn be calling the Rockies about? As it's pretty clear that this is a fire sale, and it's a fire sale that will need to continue. Yeah, it's, it's just the... Uh... One of my friends, uh, good friends, is a Rockies fan, and he basically emailed me saying, "Like, I'm, I'm, I'm giving up. Like, any room in the White Sox bandwagon because this is just, this is not going well." And it, it kind of strikes me as like the what plagues the White Sox in terms of the front office, the ownership, the loyalty in the face of no results. It's like it's even worse or more confusing or less justifiable in Colorado just because, you know, like at least you say what you will about Rick Hahn. He is good at the public facing part of the job. He's very good at explaining himself uh, or, or talking around things, um, you know, not getting terribly snippy uh, or, or, you know, sometimes I think he'll you know, maybe duck out or, um, you know, make himself scarce a little bit versus getting combative the way that Breidich has gotten and <laughs> to the point where, you know, writers will make fun of him, uh, you know, more willing to. I think Han's very good at the relationships part of the job and just the, you know, things that kind of, I guess, forge your reputation or at least faith in your ability to think things through. <laughs> That's what Breidich doesn't have. So just, uh, it, it makes me feel a little bit better in terms of watching what the White Sox do, but it's also one of those situations that, uh, you know, there aren't many teams like them thinking like with the, like the, the Diamondbacks when they traded away, uh, Dansby Swanson, just that kind of situation where it's nice to have those teams that make you feel a little bit better about what your team is doing. <laughs> so <laughs> I feel bad for Rockies fans because I you know, I, I've gone to a number of Rockies games and I enjoy the scene, like you said, and I generally speaking want them to do well, but it's also just nice to have that kind of cushion beneath you in terms of reputation. But looking at their roster, I mean, Herman Marquez is the one that kind of jumps out as the guy who would be uh, a big help. I've also, you know, and I don't know if this is just me liking a, a Coors guy or or what, but uh, Rymel uh, Tapia, like, uh, I've yeah. liked him for outfield depth for a while. It just seemed like he had a hard time breaking through the Rockies outfield, but it seemed like he produced in lower levels and, and just never got the playing time. And last year seemed like was a bit of a breakthrough for him. And just a, if you want outfield depth, the guy who bats left-handed, I, I just like the idea of him floating around, um, especially he's entering our beers and uh, hasn't really proven himself a fixture. I mean, I like David Dahl for the same reasons, just except his lack of playing time was all sorts of injuries, but uh, just one of those weird playing time situations the Rockies never got on top of. Seems like there might be an opportunity there, but uh, those are the two that jumped out to me. Uh, uh, you know, maybe they'd command a price, but then when you see what they got or didn't get for Arenado, maybe not. Well, Hermain Marquez, I'm glad you mentioned it because I think that's a no-brainer. But that's such a no-brainer that every team in baseball is going to be calling Brightage about the availability availability of Marquez because he's only getting paid like $11 million next year. 
and 13 million the following season. I need to get my notes here because I was going to write a column about this. Yeah, he's getting paid seven and a half million dollars in 2021, 11 million in 2022, 15 million in 2023. And there's a club option for 16 million dollars in 2024. And this is a really good pitcher. This is someone that can help lead the rotation. If you don't feel comfortable with Lance Lynn, you can let Lance Lynn walk after the 2021 season and replace Lynn with Marquez. And then you got Marquez through the, at least the 2024 season uh, for the Chicago White Sox. Again, that's a no brainer to me, but that's going to be a no brainer, no brainer for every competitive team, in major mm-hmm. league baseball. Uh, so the market is deep. Uh, there's some suggestions as, as far as Charlie Blackman, the problem with Charlie Blackman is that for his 2022 and 2023 seasons, those are player options. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if you trade him, he can opt out. And uh, I don't know if any team wants to touch that. There's no value for a team calling regarding as far as that type of contract. You would have to only make an offer thinking that I'm getting, I'm only having Charlie Blackman for this season because he could easily opt out, uh, especially if he wants to stay in Denver. True. Uh, but again, hey, put him in right field for the White Sox if Adam Ean gets hurt. Maybe that's a July type of trade idea uh, if Adam Ean can't stay healthy and Adam Ingles over his head again, uh, drowning offensively. And the White Sox still need more left-handed power in their lineup. It's not the worst idea in the world. I'm just saying that they're, you know Charlie Blackman's contract is not exactly team-friendly, uh, so it won't. It won't take a huge package to get him. That's that's I guess that that's the positive there. But he could easily opt out of the season if he doesn't like your team and doesn't want to play in that market. Uh, but yeah, I mean Trevor Story. There's just no way he's staying in Denver after this. And you know the Rockies have never won a division. They've always made it as a wild card. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously they made it to the World Series in uh, in 2007. But it looks pretty dire in Denver. And it's it just feels like, Jim, we're going to have another rebuilding team in baseball. We're seeing the teardown in Baltimore. We're seeing the teardown in Pittsburgh. And I feel like, here you go. Here's another teardown team. And the next one is going to be the Colorado Rockies. And it sucks that they don't have Nolan Arenado. But if you're a St. Louis Cardinals fan, after so much uncertainty in the National League Central to be able to land Nolan Arenado, you got to love your chances of winning that division. Yeah, I'm hoping that he does well. I like seeing, you know, when teams try. <laughs> it's, that's kind of, I guess, where my rooting interests lie uh, in, in 2020s, or yeah, it's just it's been a few years, even in the late 2010s. But just, I tend to decide with the teams that try to inspire their fan bases with acquisitions. Like I've rooted for the Reds the last couple of years because they've tried maybe against the odds, maybe uh, when they shouldn't have, or maybe making uh, some strange pushes with who they decided to bring in, but they tried. <laughs> so I wanted to see that work out. Same thing with San Diego. Um, you know, I want to see them do well just because it would seem like uh, a good example for teams to see what it works, you know, how it works when you invest money and talent in a team. Like, yeah, you know, I just think about the way the 
Mike Illich Tigers were when they signed. They kickstarted it with uh, Pudge Rodriguez bringing him in, you know, maybe a couple of years before they theoretically should have. And they forced open the uh, their window of contention and just kept it open by aggressively adding. And fans showed it up and it seemed like it was a, a, a great time had by all, except for the lack of a World Series. But uh, that's basically what I want to see. So I think my... Uh, my general allegiance to the Rockies being like my maybe my number one or number two National League team would probably drop out and I would just replace it with a team that just wants to win earlier or <laughs> earlier than they should have or maybe you know ahead of what the projections are saying just because they want to entertain some people. The National League is going to be fun to watch. It really is. What the Dodgers and what the Padres and what the Mets have done, the Mets could still add. The Braves are very good. The Nationals are very good. Real Muto's back in Philadelphia. You never know. And the National The Giants. Yeah, the Giants aren't giving in. Right. Yeah. The Giants could be making their transition soon after a couple rebuilding years as far as uh, getting rid of the World Series core that got old and now they have to rebuild a new core. Uh, the National League is going to be fun. The, the American League could be chaotic and chaos could be fun. Um, but it is definitely going to be a very tight, heated, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, a very spicy race between the Minnesota Twins and the Chicago White Sox set up in the American League Central. And uh, yeah, I think it's going to be tense, but that could be fun. It's a lot more fun than what we have talked about when it comes to the Chicago White Sox, especially back in 2017 and 2018. This is a really nice change of pace. Indeed. But that will... But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. You guys can support us on patreon.com slash Sox Machine where you get an ad-free version of the podcast. You also get an opportunity to submit questions to our guests like our last episode with Dan. And uh, Jim is still doing his P.O. Sox mailbags uh, on the website for our Patreon supporters. And support starts at $2 a month. We have several different tiers, uh, depending on how much you want to support us and what you want to get. Uh, so if you are, if you enjoy our work and you want to help out and you want to support us, go to patreon.com slash machine to sign up today. Another way you can support us is that you could buy our gear on SocksMachine.com. We got t-shirts and other, we got stickers and we got bar coasters. I'm going to be moving soon. So please buy this stuff. So I don't have to move it with me. Uh, again, you can go to the Sox Machine store and you can buy yourself a t-shirt on the website. You can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And Sox Machine, the Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. Your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.